0: Welcome to the Future of Gaming. GM friends and welcome to the Future of Gaming. You're listening to our weekly podcasts. As hosts today we have Devin Becker and myself, Nico Vreke. And today we have a very special episode. We are taking a deep dive into Avalon. At the end of february a few weeks ago the news dropped that avalon raises 13 million dollars to build an interoperable digital universe this can mean a lot of things and also i'm kind of happy that you didn't choose the word metaverse and so for this deep dive we have probably the best two people joining us to explain exactly what's going on we have sean pinnock who is the ceo and founder of avalon and we have jeff butler who is the chief product officer um and yeah we're going to talk about avalon what's going on what's going to happen what can we look forward to as gamers um and very excited to get this off jeff sean very welcome um to the future of gaming thanks for having us um good um and yeah Devin, thanks for being here as well as my co-hosts. Um, People will likely know myself and Devin, but Sean and Jeff, would you like to give us like a very short background on yourself? And then uh, we can kick off how that background
1: rolls into what you're doing now. Perhaps, Sean, you can start. Yeah, sounds fantastic. So uh, I've been making video games a really long time. I know I'm a fairly young entrepreneur, uh, and especially with what it is that we're trying to build. But really, I, I started making games when I was maybe seven or eight years old. I was an original modder on Warcraft. I um, modded a ton of video games there. It's really how I got my start. And it actually is a lot of what shaped my vision for the game I eventually wanted to make. Um, looking at that platform back then, I, I probably spent three or 4,000 hours making games on on Warcraft 3. I was actually an original Dodo modder. It wasn't like the person that made Dota, but I, I modded and made my own spin-offs as well as a number of other games. Uh, later on in my career, um, I, I started making indie games in college. I uh, had a few fairly successful games, launched on numerous platforms, uh, also worked at Electronic Arts, did some work with Microsoft, uh, eventually built a virtual reality studio. I believe that something like the Metaverse was going to be the future, built some best-selling virtual reality games, built technologies for companies like NASA and Universal Studios, um, and sold that studio in 2021 to build uh, what was ultimately my my dream, and that's Avalon. Fantastic.
0: Um I have spent probably a couple of thousand hours playing custom games in Warcraft 3.
1: What was your most successful one that I, that I will have played? Um, I really liked video game RPG, and I actually made my own version of it. It's a, it's a game where you'd go and you'd play a number of, of different video game characters. You could play as Goku, uh, Sora from Kingdom Hearts, Cloud from Final Fantasy, and then just like fight monsters from all the different genres of games. Uh, there's a good chance I played that. Um, fantastic. Um, how about you, Jeff?
2: So I was I was super lucky. I was the highest level player in the world during EverQuest Beta for a period of time. I got to be friends with the guys on the development team when they needed somebody to kick off their customer service uh, department because they were game developers. They weren't they weren't corporate people, you know, building infrastructure and support. Um, they reached out to me. Ended up hiring me. I was the first EQ lead GM. Uh, A week later, I was the customer service manager. And uh, by virtue of my love for the the customer and the the work that I did to try to make sure that bugs were squashed and and that the game continued to progress, um, I structured the live team, for instance. Um, I ended up being the producer of EverQuest, the then world's largest massively multiplayer game, nine months later. Um, worked at the company, shipped the first three expansions for the game, um, left to co-found Sigil Games Online with my partner and make Vanguard Saga of Heroes from Microsoft, end up getting shipped by Sony Online Entertainment again. Um, worked on a lot of games. Um, Marvel Universe Online, uh, you know, early pitches for Star Trek Online, uh, Harry Potter Wizarding World Online, all sorts of crazy stuff over the years, most of which didn't end up seeing the light of day, unfortunately. Um, But fast forward to uh, Sony Online Entertainment's attempt to push the genre forward again um, based on the ideas that they laid out for EverQuest Next. Uh, a game that featured UGC and some fairly forward-thinking stuff. Still entirely traditional and Web2-based, uh, but there were some really great ideas in there. Uh, and it just so happened that Sean saw an interview that I did with one of my old employees talking about that game. He realized that he and I shared literally the identical vision for what needed to happen in the future. He reached out to me and started pitching me a game, and I held him my hand and said, Hold on. Let me finish. And I pitched him the rest of the game and he said, like, this is, it doesn't make any sense. Do you have our documents? Are you doing due <laughs> diligence for one of our investors? And I said, no, that's the game that I want to make. It's in my head. And he and I worked together very closely over the course of the last year plus. And literally we have the same game in our head.
1: Every time we turn around, we say the same thing that we're looking for. It, it's, it's the game that I think most gamers have been dreaming of for a really long time. It is. You know, we, we say I'm tired of reading about it in, in books and science fiction.
2: It's time for it to be reality.
3: It's so like You should have called the game jinx.
0: (laughs) Okay. Thanks Evan. (laughs) Um, before we continue, Jeff, what's the story behind that enormous sword behind you? Oh,
2: this is, this is just a Lord of the Rings sword. Oh, you want an enormous sword. Uh, I had a three hundred pound seven and a half feet long sword in my library for about a year and a half. Wow. The sword from the sword from Lost Ark, actually. Wow.
0: Amazing. Good. So okay, you have a conversation. You're pitching your the same game essentially to each other. Yeah. Um
2: what happened next? we, you know, initially Sean reached out to me to consult and just talk about games. Um, and we realized that we really shared a vision. Um, and over the course of a couple of weeks, uh, talking together, we realized that we wanted to work together. And so Sean said, let's, let's join forces, um, join my, join my company that I'm just getting ready to launch. And, uh, everything was just worked out. Perfect. Um, it seemed like a perfect marriage, um, in terms of our vision for what we wanted to see happen. Um, I laugh, uh, you know, I, I have, uh, cynicism and experience, I've built a lot of games, large and small, and Sean had youthful exuberance, a um, lot and a lot of experience, like pulling, pulling games up from, from the grassroots level, building teams, um, which, which also was one of my favorite things to do, um, together, uh, we we cover a lot of bases, um, and we've added to our team in exactly that way. Effectively, you know, making making any a large piece of technology is is a massive undertaking. Um, when when you talk about what could be a metaverse, even more so, the tools to build a, meta, a metaverse they haven't been built yet. Even more so, right? Having the perspective uh, coming from m- multiple points of view it's key to success.
1: Yeah. You know, it's incredibly rare to, especially in the games industry, to find someone who really shares your creative vision. You know, working in this industry, there's a lot of intensely creative people, but, but traditionally we all have really radical and different ideas and, and throughout nearly every game and every project I've worked on, um, the people that I've worked with have had different ideas. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be when those people have a share of control of creative leadership. And you know, when when I spoke to Jeff, this person that really helped pioneer uh, EverQuest, which helped pioneer MMOs. I mean, World of Warcraft would not be what it is today, and, and the MMO industry would not be what it is today with, without EverQuest. To find this person that shared this ultimate vision as me was incredibly gratifying. And I, and I also knew that I, I needed I needed him to help me to really run the sort of things we're doing. But talking about the team we've built, I mean, really it's going to come down to building an incredible team and empowering those people um, towards a unified vision to, to build Avalon, and, and I'm incredibly proud of the team we've built. We've p- pulled together rock stars from all different types of games. We've got people from Call of Duty, like one of the original Call of Duty founders is on our team. We've got people that worked on Elden Ring, Assassin's Creed, God of War, a number of other really um, amazing titles. But people from around the world, too, with, with diverse backgrounds, people with different Cultural understandings, and, and it's going to be all of those forces sort of passionately pulling together towards what it is that we're trying to do. That's going to make this a reality. We've been very fortunate to build a, a company um, with a culture that's
2: not ego driven. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard the stories talking about games of you know creative ego disagreement, um, people pulling projects in multiple directions at once, and not being able to get along. Um, we've we've been extremely fortunate, but also very vigilant to make sure that we bring people on board who share that creative vision so that we, you know, it's a lot of work creating pieces, piece of technology. We don't want that work being a fight for what the final goal is, right? That draws, it it saps creativity and enthusiasm for your product. And truthfully, we've, we've seen the same enthusiasm and vision from other potential partners as well, not just people within our own company, people who are also working in the Web3 web space, creating technology. Their, their, their sort of ultimate vision for where they want to go is the sort of product that we're working on, technology that we're creating. So finding these people headed in the same direction and with the opportunity to make partnerships is going to be key to our success.
0: What can you tell me about your vision and and the game that you were pitching to each other, that initial conversation?
1: Yeah. uh, You know, it's essentially, uh, imagine a universe where there are tons of games built by tons of people, um, but inside of that universe, there's different intellectual property that interoperates. And one moment you're playing a game. Let's say it's. Uh, we'll use an example. One of our partners. Let's say Merit Circles built a world. They built their own universe. It's a high fantasy universe. They have a city. It kind of looks like it kind of looks like Minas Tirith from Lord of the Rings, but it's their own version and adaptation of it. I'm um, inside of that city. The guild leader is actually wearing the One Ring, but he also is carrying lightsabers. And there's an invasion going on. It's YGG, one of our other partners. And they fly in, and they're flying in with Star Destroyers to attack uh, merit Circle City. And then uh, there's paratroopers dropping out of the sky. Uh, And and one of the paratroopers is uh, dressed like Darth Vader, and another one looks like Superman. And this is all uh, intellectual property that we've partnered with, uh, different IPs that we've partnered with. And items that users have created with those partnerships inside of those own worlds, and then are certified in the blockchain. There's there's rarity, there's scarcity. Maybe there's only one 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 ring. That's why it's called the one ring. And but there's nine uh, there's the nine rings of men. There's the rings of elves, the rings of dwarves, and, and they all have their own unique functionality, right? Um, so that that kind of paints a, a just a sliver of the vision. Uh, ultimately, what it is that we're trying to do is make it really easy for people to make content with our tools, and then have it all certified uh, with the virtual economy. Uh, decentralization and uh, distributed services are really important to us. How do we build the technology in a way that isn't, isn't just hosted by us but has longevity far beyond the success or failure of Avalon? Uh, and the only way to do that is to build a distributed architecture. So that's, that's something that we're doing as well.
3: All right. I gotta wonder, though, uh, just a quick question on that. How, how does it interact, though, with game balance <laughs> and multiple worlds interacting. Like, are you talking like a sandbox environment or are you talking a game environment? Because I wasn't really clear. Because, like, if it's a game environment, right, game game balance is a factor there. Like, those lightsabers and Star Destroyers versus medieval stuff doesn't sound very balanced, right? But if it's a sandbox, you know, where it's like Disney
1: Infinity or something where everything's just mashing together, who cares, right? Well, you know, there's actually an answer to that. So it is game and it's game balance. And there's a way to do that. And, you know, it's something, like, for example, I'm a I'm a huge follower of things like, um, you know, tier zoo and like, uh, um, character battles across different universes. And there, there's a way to say, okay, how strong is the one ring? How would someone with the one ring fare? Uh, against someone carrying a lightsaber, a Jedi. How would a Jedi fare against uh, Goku? Um, you know, before he was a Super Saiyan. The, these are these are actual things that we could reinforce with numbers. Um, it's it's going to be an incredibly complex problem to solve, but it's something we we want to do. But Jeff, do you want to elaborate a little bit? So interoperability
2: is going to be incredibly important. Think, take a universe, right? Take uh, take the Marvel Cinematic Universe for example, right? We, If we were all, the four of us, custodians of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we would have to craft a story and framework whereby She-Hulk can punch Thor, or what happens if either one of them punch a normal person. Very bad things, obviously. Um, Spider-Man, who's not nearly as strong as Thor. What happens when Mjolnir hits Spider-Man in the shoulder? All, all the all the simple single universe questions. You know that you might you might be able to very quickly as a game designer create a structure for. We simply need to extend that structure into other universes. What would happen? Uh, you know if somebody pulled a phaser on a person who was carrying a blaster like Han Solo? Um, it's a complex problem, but it's by no means impossible to solve. Right. Right. You know, just, just like pen and paper games have created universal systems, um, we'll create a system of filters and interoperability that allow people who create worlds um, to disallow things like, oh, you know, welcome, gentlemen, to my world, there's no magic here. Oh, oh, no magic? Oh, so if I bring, you mean, you're saying if I bring the one ring and Excalibur with me that they don't work? Yes, that's correct. They don't work here, or they do work. Everything works. Your phaser and your one ring both work, for example. Um, So as you can imagine, the ability to create worlds and and to set up those game balance uh, elements are all going to be based on interoperability and filters.
3: I think the analogy to TTRPGs like is actually probably a good one than something like GURPS or some of those other attempts at universal. I mean, there's a lot more of them now. But D- like... D20, right? There's right. there's there's, there's, exactly. a lot, there's lots more of that stuff. I
2: mean, you can look at Pathfinder. There's Starfinder. There's Pathfinder. Right.
3: I A, mean that, that makes they sense, are right? Obviously interoperable, but uh, but it sounds like you're also talking about like some some ways for permissions within worlds, right? Like some customizability. So like, hey, maybe sorry, you can't bring Thor's hammer over here to to this right. medieval world because it's too strong for this world, right. or because we don't allow magic in this world, or whatever it is, right? Yeah. But uh, and so then like there is some limitations to interoperability that are customizable by. The the people that are doing that configurable, Absolutely. you know, permission systems. Um, you know, you can
2: build in my world. No, this is a pre built world, and you can't build in my world. Or you can own land, and then you can build whatever you want to build there. Um, so on and so forth. We want to create. We want to create the tools that would allow someone like an intellectual property owner to create their own game, um, where you could have a game like Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. Living inside the technology that we create, or Gears of War, online, living in the technology we create. If you take two steps back and look at look at the existing body, uh, you know the the sort of the cadre of modders and content creators out there. There there are hundreds of thousands of people who mod Skyrim, Fallout Four, you know Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, who are crying out for a place where all of their work can be showcased, where they can earn money for their efforts, right? Where they don't have to like put up a Patreon account and hope that someone will give you 50 cents for the thing that you just spent two months working on.
0: As a VC investor, um, when I'm listening to a pitch, especially a pitch leveraging, you know, new technologies and doing things that weren't really able, um, weren't really possible before, uh, one question I, I have to ask is, why now? Why is this the time to be building
1: something like this? You know, it's funny you say that. We, we actually spoke with the people that made, um, Jeff, what's that? Second Life, uh, very recently. And, and he said to us, you know, Avalon is the game that we really wanted to make 20 years ago, but the technology just wasn't there. The technology is, is I think, really coming together right at this moment. We're, we're kind of sitting at a a, a time... Where it's a singularity. It's a singularity of, of events and a singularity of technology. We've got generative AI just making leaps, uh, Unreal Engine 5 with Nanite technology. I mean, people can build worlds inside of Avalon as dense as Coruscant, Coruscant from Star Wars. Google Coruscant, look how dense that world is, without having to know uh, or understand anything about game development optimization. Technology. Ten
2: years ago, Nico, I, we, I couldn't give you personal land in, in a game based on Unreal that would allow you the freedom of making, oh,
1: okay, let's make Orgrimmar. Oh, yeah, no. It just... and, and now we, we can actually own our assets. We can, we can build payment rails. We can build distributed architecture. We can put tens of thousands of people and servers together. It's all coming together. We can even load all this stuff on, on the web because of cloud rendering. I mean, imagine like the most, one of the most beautiful games you've ever seen just on a browser. That's what we're talking about here. It's all this technology coming together at once. And then typing in a text prompt, hey, I want a, a, a high fantasy city uh, by the hills. Uh, put some goblins in there. Um, and then, all, by the way, all these goblins are intelligent because they're running there's, – there's a chat GPT-like technology running these goblins. They have a database of information. They understand goblin language. They understand about the, world, the lore in the world because you gave them some of that information. Um, build me this thing in a text prompt. And then brr, you generate that little world. That, that's where we're going. And it wasn't possible ten years ago. The convergence of technologies now—not not even remotely. I mean, look at look at No Man's Sky.
2: No, no Man's Sky promised um, procedural generation of content, and it took some time to reach that goal. Uh, procedure, simple procedural generation of content has yet to reach the, you know, the, the sort of lofty experience, uh, and and the, the science fiction promise where it's like, Oh wait, are there quests there? Are there, you know, like really how, how much content is there? Um, you know, look at World of Warcraft, the amount of time that it takes to create every single zone. Um, every five meter square area of the world is hand curated. An artist went in and fiddled around with it. takes a lot of work and that's that that's the paradigm existing in massively multiplayer games today that that we seek to break that that the company. Can never create content. The, the 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 authoring company can never create content rapidly enough to satisfy the player. Um, look at you know, look at Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons launched in you know the, the mid '70s without content the only content there was, was the content you created yourself. Then they realized that they could create their own content, bring people into their worlds, and that they would be incredibly captivated. They could take fantasy authorship and shoehorn it into these Dungeons and Dragons adventures, started to make good money doing that content. And alongside them, other people were able to create content too, personally. Then it exploded when they said, here, You can make content in our universe and we'll bless it, right, with third edition and open gaming license, you know, which recently came into the news when (laughs) they threatened to revoke those rights, right? People were up in arms. This is a great example of what could happen in, in the games industry with people able to author content. I'd love to see companies form to author content in the tool that we provide,
3: Right. Yeah. That that begs the question though is is your tool mainly for partners or players for UGC stuff or trying to serve both masters? Like who's who's it primarily directed at? Because you've spoken about partners that you have right because of the IP stuff and dealing with that stuff. But like, how much does player have have involvement in that? Or are they just playing
1: with those toys? And ultimately, I mean, when we talk about building something like the Oasis, because that's that's all really what we're trying to do. We say a lot, you know, it can't be built by a single company. It can't be built even by a handful of companies. I mean, look at what Facebook's trying to achieve right now and how much money they've spent and they haven't been able to get close, in my opinion. Um, you, You need to make it easy for anyone to be able to create, for anyone to build, and then for all those worlds to be interoperable. And then in the future, someday we could have something like an Oasis. So really, we see what we're building is for the players, for the people. Um, yes, we're going to do a lot of partnerships. Yes, we'll 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 onboard a different intellectual property, and we'll build worlds with with those things. But then we want to extend that intellectual property to our users. We'll make a good game, a good experience out of those things. But then, Devin, you'll take those tools, and then you'll go build a better one with some of this intellectual property. Damn straight. That's what we want to see. It starts. It starts with one person.
2: Think about content authorship on YouTube, right? Uh, it starts with one person, sing, a single entity, um, who's working alone. Um, it could be a young person, could be a, someone in, you know, college. could be Could be an older person, and then it goes, you know, from that point they form collaborations. I do great work modeling. Sean is a, a spectacular scripter we have got a texture artist. You've next thing you know, you've got a, a large group of people, or you could start with a hundred people working on an existing intellectual property using uh, using our, our tools as an extension of uh, you know products like Unreal Engine, because. You can author content in an interoperable world and take advantage of all the people who are participating without having to cannibalize the marketplace as every other massively multiplayer game currently does. You know, the 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 web two MMOs that are going to release over the course of the next year are generally cannibalizing from the same from the same space.
1: That's another paradigm that really needs to be broken. And and, and we talk about you know, MMO a lot, MMORPG, and it's true that we're building systems around that to kind of balance interoperability to the best of our ability. Not an easy feat, of course. It's an incredibly challenging feat, but there will be systems in place where people can gate that as well. Like, let's say, for example, someone wants to build a world, and that world doesn't need to have the MMORPG elements. And so they decided to rip out the quote-unquote Dungeons & Dragons uh, D20 rule set, and they want to build their own. That's totally fine. Maybe their world is more like Stardew Valley, or maybe it's a concert. It's a world for concerts. It's it's Madison Square Garden in New York City, and none of that stuff's relevant. But you can bring your characters in here. You can look like uh, Superman because you got his stuff. You can you can uh, carry Excalibur and in, in, into the concert. Uh, that's fine. Um, So it just depends on the user, depends on the worlds they want to build, but we are pretty focused initially on on the gamification and the sort of role-playing game elements because we think that's going to be how people get onboarded into a a not metaverse.
2: We think that's part of the core entertainment loop anyway. I mean, the mosh pit with Excalibur is going to be a lot more fun.
0: So I've spent some time looking at uh, UGC game creation platforms um, in all shapes and sizes. I think the the two that I want to use as an example now are Roblox and Fortnite Creative Mode. Um, both of them have been able to scale to success. Roblox has done that through time, I would say. It took them 20 years. And now, maybe over the past six, seven, they've reached that critical mass of of creators that actually provide the content for the new players to come in and start that that um, viral loop looking at fortnite's uh creative modes it's already in the name their success and their critical scale uh, came off the success the enormous success of fortnite um, and that's how both of these have managed to solve the so-called cool, cold star problem where you need content for players to come in, but you need players in order to incentivize builders to actually create the content. Um, how are you guys going to be solving the cold start problem? It's funny you say cold start
1: because I'm I'm reading the book right now. There you um, go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, Andrew and Chance, a brilliant guy. Um, anyway, um, uh, for us, we we have a saying in the studio that's really important, and I and I I look at those companies, and I still don't think they've fully captured this. You know, as as an original. Warcraft 3 modder, which really was like one of the first, I think, successful UGC platforms. Something that they did pretty well, and I haven't seen done as well yet, although Fortnite Creative, I think, is starting to kind of grab this, is creating really needs to feel like playing. Um, it doesn't quite feel like that in those platforms. Like we want to, like, this is why I think Minecraft is so successful is the creation loop and the playing loop are basically the same thing. And we want to really push that as far as we can. Like, uh, Hogwarts Legacy, which we released recently, they have a creative mode as well. And you're casting spells to build things. And, and it really feels like you're playing a video game. We're pushing that much further than these other games. Um, that ideology, like making it really simplified. Um, I use the, the Warcraft example because they have a, a scripting system built in that, at me, as a nine-year-old, I was using to create um, events, uh, to create functionality in my product. And I had no idea I was actually making code. And it's because they abstracted it so much to me as a user that it didn't feel like it. And so we're, we're pushing those ideas really far. And then the other thing that's really differentiating us is, is that standard for interoperability. So that you know that you can create assets that interoperate with these other games. And then the scalability, too. We're talking about worlds with tens of thousands of people. Uh, worlds with extreme density because we're leveraging all the latest technology. I mean, Tim Sweeney uh, himself said that he doesn't necessarily think Epic will be the one to build the metaverse, but he thinks that his tools will be used by another company to build the metaverse. Um, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. Tim
2: Tim stood in my break room 20 years ago at Sigil Games Online. Uh, it was two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, and he had come out to help me with a milestone delivery that was coming up in in the in the in the week uh, for, for Microsoft, and you know I said I really didn't expect you to come out and help firsthand. And he shook his head and said, "Well, you're making you're making a massively multiplayer game using my technology, and what I want to see in the future is Unreal." He said, "I envision islands of of content that are connected through Unreal." Where, your, where people can move from your game to, to another game because Unreal makes that possible. He said, if I don't work with you and learn how to extend Unreal to serve a massively multiplayer game, I'll never reach that goal. And that was 20 years ago. And so Unreal has continued to move in that direction, Nanite. You know, nanite geometry, nanite skeletal meshes. Uh, you know what what nanite is capable of right now. You would consider almost black magic, right? Um, trillions of polys on the screen, sixty frames a second. R- ridiculous assertion
1: ten years ago. As a game developer, w- when nanite came out, I was like, no, billions of polygons. No, I don't. BS. Bull, bull crap. And and so I you know I loaded up a scene. Uh, an hour and a half later, my jaw is just on the on the floor. Th- those engineers over there, like, crack the code. They crack the code. Like it's like we're talking. We built worlds with literally trillions of polygons. It doesn't. It, we just we just throw whatever we want at it. It Doesn't matter. It just works. Um, it's pretty. It's I mean, pretty amazing. ultimately
2: there will be an there there will be an upward limit. Every technology has its limitations. But the fact of the matter is, we want to be able to show scenes you know of incredible density depth and detail like Coruscant. um king's landing right look, you know look look the rendering of king's landing in game of thrones oh, okay that there's a lot of work that go that goes into that rendering right it probably took a server farm a month to render
1: those scenes right churning on them but yeah, to be clear, there are there are limitations. Like if you open up Unreal Five and you try and build a scene like Coruscant, you're not you're not going to be able to unless you're a game development house with 30 people and you spend a long time. The, the, what we're doing is we're taking the th- the things that we know that work, using our game development knowledge, and then building tools so the user can do that. They don't, have to, they don't have to understand that, oh, hey, uh, after about 1,000 draw calls, you're going to hit your render limit. Oh, you can't use this many textures. You can't put this many lights. And they don't need to understand all those things because we're just going to make it so that's how it all works. And that's a part of gamifying the experience, right? We, we want to make it easy. I want, I want a group of 13-year-olds in a, wee, in a weekend to build a fun game and not to worry about what it is that we're doing. Just, just do it. I want, I want it to be entertaining from a moment-to-moment uh,
2: standpoint and entertaining to watch as well right? We've, we've realized very strongly over, over recent years that a game needs to be entertaining to, to watch. Mm-hmm. As a, from a gamer perspective,
0: um, what is the main problem with MMOs today that you're trying to solve, if you had to pick one?
2: You can't create content rapidly enough. So, you know, if I were Activision Blizzard, I can't make WoW fast enough if i'm you know it literally if i'm square enix i can't make final fantasy 14 updates fast enough i can't
1: create content rapidly and and to to, to tag on to that too like it feels like the same loop like i'm doing the same thing over and over again okay i'm i'm doing a fetch quest i'm doing a dungeon that has this that has this thing i'm doing this raid like it's the same sort of ...thing I've been eating for the last 15 years. Static World Treadmill. Static World Treadmill. Static World Treadmill. And it's boring. Like, What I want to, to do is experience new, meaningful content... ...that feels valuable for me as a player. How do I do that? How do I get there? We need so much content. We need so much novel content... ...that it always feels new. It feels fresh. And we, we need dungeons that literally no one has ever done before. Constantly. We need, we need there to be an endless staircase... With a vision in the future that we all want to go to, the only way we get there is by creating tools that make it so easy and so fun to make content that the content's just never ending.
3: So you mean from players, not from AI, right? Like, or are you trying to do it, both? Like or both AI enabling players, but
1: AI or? enabling players, AI enabling players right. both. Yeah. So gotcha. it, like to to actually make games from AI, we're we're a little like to make whole games from AI, we're a little bit off. But uh, I mean, when I say a little bit, I mean I think five to ten years, I, mean, I think in ten years. Uh, you could do. We could be at that point. AI we is can, a starting
2: point, right? We can start augmenting that, it. That be
1: yeah.
2: Think about. Uh, I don't know how how much you guys look at like Skyrim mods, right? If you go to Fallout Fallout Nexus, Skyrim Nexus, look look at those single player games and see the body of content that has been created by. Content authors, not the company, over the course of the years since those games launched. I mean, we could log on and play a modded game of Fallout 4 and spend a month playing. Right and not run out of content.
3: I guess referencing them though begs the question. So like they ran into the problem of like monetization around it, right? Like players monetizing their own modded content, and like that's been a real sticking point. Even like you know, look at what you know what happened with Blizzard and mods, and like there's just been an issue, right? People monetizing things, and now like you you guys are talking about ip mixed into that as well you've got like the whole controversy over the D beyond stuff like licensing of ip stuff and content created from that like how are you guys looking to help solve like the player's motivation outside of just sheer creativity
1: so it's funny you say that because i, I again i look back at warcraft 3 and and the mobas i mean look at how much money league of legends and dota 2 and, and a number of other mobas have made and if and if warcraft had just figured out how to monetize their ugc platform it'd be the most it'd be the most dominant game in the world today It would be, because you'd have League of Legends on there. You'd have a number of other games on there. I mean, they they invented tower defense games. They invented so many different games. Arc essentially existed on there uh, in in a much uh, more uh, small format. But um, we need to build payment rails around these systems. And blockchain is actually an incredibly good solution for that. How do we make it so that – I'm going to use you again, Devin. How do we make it so that you make a piece of content? uh, it's, It's the Pokemon company's content. It's a Pokemon world. Um, and so that when you, when you create a world and someone buys an asset in that world, you get paid. The Pokemon company gets paid. And that person that bought it, when they sell it again, everyone gets paid again. Or even better yet, Nico, you come. You look at Devin's world and you go, that's cool. I think I can make it better. You, you, uh, you speak to Devin. You create a new spin-up version of the world. You modify it some. And then Nico, you get paid. Devin, you get paid. The Pokemon company gets paid. And every person that buys an asset down the line. And this can happen X number of times. However many times it needs to happen, there'll be a system built into that and it'll be built directly into the smart contract. I mean, is that
3: going to be dependent on on working with partners then that are a bit more permissive? Like, you bring up Pokemon, right? But we know, like, Nintendo, for example, is just not a fan of people doing anything with their work, right? Whereas, you know, like, the D&D Beyond stuff was trying to find kind of that middle ground of, like, how do we take some royalties from this, maybe, from people that are making a lot of money? Or how do we, like, take a cut? And obviously, like, we see marketplaces doing that. But we also saw heavy pushback from trying to monetize, like, Bethesda's mods, right? Like, that was part of the reason I bring that up is there was, like, a lot of user pushback even from that stuff. Stuff. Part part of, part of the problem is that that there's there are issues traditionally of tracking,
2: right? You know who who is who's paying? Um, you know there, there's no
1: structure set up to support any of this work, and that's work that we plan on doing. But blockchain technology is actually very unique in that and it helps significantly with this problem. It's not, it's funny because it's not even the primary reason we're using it, although it does help significantly with this problem. Technically, it can be solved without blockchain, but it, it helps a lot. The primary reason is really decentralization. The metaverse can't be a walled garden and we need an interoperability and that's that's really the primary reason. But Devin, I, I think that, you know, companies are really going to want in intellectual property is really going to want in this because they're going to see the economic opportunity and they're just going to want a piece of the action. But you're right in that you know the Pokemon company may not be one of the first companies; it may be one of the companies that we get much later. And, and it may just be that it's a lot of our own um, intellectual property that people start with, and we start slowly grabbing other intellectual property. I mean, look at Fortnite today; look at all the intellectual property in, in that platform. If you if you have a game as popular as that, it's going to come. And I will say, just anecdotally. And we've there, we've had a lot of good conversations. I can't say more than that, but we've had a lot of good conversations around that.
2: Massive intellectual property holders I mean, already. Jeff, tell, tell me about all the intellectual property you've worked with in the past. <laughs> uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Harry Potter, Wizarding World, uh, The List, Warhammer 40K.
1: On and on and our, our on. Chief, and our on. chief operating officer was the head of business development for North America Bandai Namco, and he's worked with and Capcom. And, and Capcom. He's worked with nearly uh, not every intellectual property, but I would say most of the big ones you could think of. So we've got relationships there. It's going to become down to you know, does this make business sense? Um, for these people and, and at some point I believe the answer and, and is absolutely how, yes, unequivocally how yes. How forward how forward thinking any one of
2: these individual companies are. Take take you know, pick an intellectual property, to let's say Star Wars. How forward thinking are the people who are currently responsible uh, at Disney for Star Wars, what what sort of what sort of splash do they want to make? It's clear to the to the four of us here that they were forward-thinking enough to allow their assets to be used in Ready Player One. It's not a Star Wars. Power movie. Power Spielberg,
3: <laughs> right? Not not
2: a Star Wars movie, mm-hmm. but there,
3: there's an ad at- ad. Are you guys looking to also build content moderation tools for these? Po- so, like for example, the big the biggest concern that comes up, of course, is time to penis, right? <laughs> and like Lego, infamously it's dealt 20, with that. It's
2: twenty seven seconds.
3: Right, right. And, and so like that was like like Lego was a b- great example of dealing with that constantly because they're like as a company they're built around the idea of UGC. They there there are online
2: games that have shut down that have yeah. been shut down because of TTP. Exactly. Right? And so that's why so, I wonder,
3: are you guys trying to help with that or you're like that's on you guys building the worlds.
2: We're
3: we're going to we're going to be a mature game,
2: right? R- right out of the gate for a number of reasons around the world uh and you know, epic Epic recently discovered this with Fortnite uh, around the world laws are changing forcing online experiences to focus more on mature persons right to to remove children and people who can can be harmed by mature interaction from the online environment so we'll be focused on mature players
1: mature so that, that that's there, there's a couple caveats there because i obviously use the pokemon company's reference which wouldn't work in a mature setting um but you look at roblox and you go holy like look at all the things that are going on in roblox all the bad things and you go wow that's that's not good um we're gonna have to build technology that helps with moderation um we are we are initially a mature platform i would say we're, we're more platform than a game uh but with with games inside of it however in the future we're very interested in, in building worlds that are Targeted towards younger audiences, but those worlds will be separated from the mature, the mature ones, right? And they'll be very clearly defined. As, and these will be different games that are targeted towards younger people. And we'll have to have a much more hands-on, perhaps white-listed approach. For example, my daughter right now, she's two, and she just discovered YouTube Kids, completely different than YouTube, right? And that's how I think of Avalon. We'll, we'll probably have you know universes we call that are catered towards children. But initially, the mature uh, mature audience is going to be our focus. So, the Pokemon company is probably not going to be there uh, out of the launch gate. That might be, you know, when we do Avalon Kids or something like that in the future. But yeah,
3: as long as you can keep the furries isolated to their own world, we're fine. <laughs> That's where Divin can go hang out. It's good, oh, yeah, right? Oh, yes. That's <laughs> why I don't play Second Life.
0: <laughs> um, I want to touch upon uh, web what three again. Uh, we we like to talk about that topic here on the show. Um, you know, Jeff, you and I we met. Think think last year in New York or at GDC, I don't really remember, um, and we were having a discussion about New York, New York what Web3 brings to games. Um, what is your answer when you're speaking to an um, experienced Web2 develop, <clears throat> developer that tells you, hey, whatever Web3 does, we can already do that um, with existing technology without needing the blockchain?
2: Go, Sean. Okay.
1: <laughs> so it's actually, you know, it's funny. I had a conversation with a, a very experienced developer, uh, someone that's been in the industry for 25 years, a staunch critic of blockchain. They said to me, look, blockchain is just a database, it's a 64 bit integer. Like, I hear that all the time. And I say, okay, that's technically true. You know what? Assembly is just a programming language. Why would you use Assembly when, you know, C is just a programming language? Why don't you write code in Assembly? Because that's just programming, right? Okay. So it's, it's, it's different. Here's what, what makes blockchain unique. This is what I say to people that are, that are engineers to actually understand the technology. And, and, and I think most of them know this, but then you can think about how it's applicable, is that it's not, just a, it's not just a database. It's a decentralized peer-to-peer network that's scalable and secure. So when transactions occur, we're not looking to a centralized server. We're not looking to our server to say, hey, this is a legit transaction. We're, said, looking to a community and saying this is a legit transaction. When you start thinking about interoperability in the metaverse, that starts to become really important. If we don't want a single company with the GDP of the largest country in the world to literally own the metaverse, we need to decentralize it. And the authentication layer is how we get there. So when we start talking about things like digital ownership, Again, if we don't want a single company to own all of your assets, we want them to live in the community. The way to do it is with decentralization. So our, our vision for this is how do we solve that problem but in all of the layers? Because there's other layers. Like the blockchain doesn't have enough throughput to to carry you know, assets. I, I like to equate it to like the deed of a house because the reality is it is a small amount of data. So like when you buy a home, or Or when you buy an, an item in an avalon or in another game um you're not literally buying the house, the asset. You're buying a deed. You're buying a deed to the home. So that's what it is that blockchain serves us for. It it solves that problem of the equation. And then, yes, we're going to need more layers to solve the asset problem. We're going to need an interplanetary file system or a torrent system to host all those assets and to have standards built around those assets, metadata built into the smart contract that says, okay, when I take this asset from my game and pull it into your game, This is where I can pull the asset from. This is the metadata that's associated with it. This is how it's supposed to work. And I know that it's legit. I know that it's verified because I can verify it through this community, this peer-to-peer service, and not this single server, this overlord of the metaverse. Does that make sense?
2: I have a a simple real-world answer. Um, As developers, right now, if if you work with Steam, they take a big cut. If you create content for games that are on Steam and you sell that content, on the Steam store, they take a big cut, a huge, huge cut. But they do, in effect, uh, mimic the sort of behavior that we're talking about. I mean, we can go play Warframe today, and you can download someone's skin that that an individual author made, not, you know, not 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 uh, an official Warframe skin. It's modded content, and we we don't want. Uh, and and really don't can't tolerate uh the sort of science fiction story that you see in Ready Player One where there's one individual entity in control of all this data and information um, if 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 you know if a metaverse is going to be is going to be for people it's going to include everyone and have a low barrier to entry which is going to be necessary for it to succeed right you know literally it's there for everyone you can you can be educated there you can you can receive mental health care there and so on and so on right all, all the all the needs that society is going to have to draw from this technology it needs to
1: be there for everyone. And that's part of why I don't believe that what we're doing is even at its ultimate vision, like the metaverse, what really is the metaverse is, I I would say we're building a a multiverse or a universe at best, what really is a metaverse is we build this platform and has all these great games inside of it. But then we can interface with this game, with this platform with this with this thing. And what's important is that unlike Steam, when we're moving assets from game and people are buying things over there, we're not, we're not taking that we're not taking a piece of that action. Right? That's that's their problem. That's their product. It's decentralized. That's what it is that we're really trying to achieve, and that's what blockchain helps us solve. Um, but if we're not careful, what we're going to end up with is something much bigger and much scarier than Steam, something much bigger and much scarier than Apple, and it's going to be this walled garden that just eats everything. And I'm trying to so- solve that problem. We're trying to solve that problem, and blockchain is just a tool in the shed for that. And we have to look at we have to look at the technology and be honest. Though a lot of people have. Uh, you know, lied a lot. They've promised a lot of things. They've they've said they're going to do X, Y, or Z, and they've essentially taken advantage of people. And that's not that's not at all what we're about. Like we we just look at it as a tool in the shed to help us solve this problem.
2: We want we want to guard against that virtual dystopia, right? Um, you know, they they say it can be done in in Web two, but they haven't done it. Right. We, we tried. We, we argued back in 1999 while we were working on EverQuest that we should head in this direction. And, uh, you know, our, our corporate overlords and, and our corporate attorneys, uh, corporate counsel said, no, no, like we we can't we don't want to spend the time to craft the EULAs and laws that could encompass the sort of vision that you have. That's sometime way down the road
1: in the future. Again, sorry. you know, when, the, when the internet was built, we're all really lucky in that it was built by a, a, essentially a nonprofit trying to create standards and open protocols for the internet, and that was really great. That was, you know, in the '90s, people didn't really think the internet was going to be a big deal. It's obviously massive. Thank God it was built that way. But you, you look at where we are today, and essentially, you know, the nature of capitalism and, and businesses, and what we're really having now is these massive companies just owning parts of the internet, all all these centralized services. And these are companies, you know, the largest companies today, I think seven out of 10 are, are technology companies that really only came into existence in the last 30 years, some in the last 10 years. And when you start thinking about, you know, this this metaverse and this new walled garden that's going to happen, it's going to make these other companies look small. And so how can we create open protocols that align with capital, our capitalistic nature, society, our Western society, that open and decentralize this technology. That's really, really important. And I wish more people were thinking about it and talking about it. How scary is it going to be for one company to own that? When we talk about 20 years into the future. In, 19, in 1985, if this was
2: a four-way conference call with, with us all around the world, it would have cost hundreds of dollars through AT&T mm-hmm. and whatever telecommunication services that we were working with. Imagine what this call would cost if that company were still in charge of everything that we're doing right now, right? That's what we have to guard against. I don't want to log into the steam metaverse and have 30%
1: of every transaction and everything that I do scraped off the top. All the advertising, I mean, all the data, all the data they're going to have on you. I mean, it's going to be invasive. IOI industries, uh, IOI industries, right? Well, then how comfortable would
3: you guys be working, let's say, let's say Zuckerberg came up and was like, I like what you guys are building, it's better than what we're doing, uh, we'd like to kind of work together to interface this stuff, you know, put it on the quest, whatever, like, how how open would you guys be to, because you're, if you're trying to build interoperable technology, right, do you go, sorry, you just don't fit with our, our vision, you can't be part of our interoperable thing, or is it more, hey, we're trying to build stuff that's permissive, if you want to interop, you
1: can do it at this level, right. and that's it, like, so I mean that, that that conversation can go a lot of ways, right? Um, you know, like what would happen if if someone like that tried to acquire us? What would happen if they want to interrupt with us? Right? There's there's a lot of different ways that could go. Um, what's most important to us is that we stay true to our vision, our ethics, and what it is that we're trying to achieve. Um, I, I think absolutely we'll need partnerships with companies like like Meta, like Facebook, like Amazon. Uh, we'll, we'll want to work with those companies, um, and I, I mean as as long as we can ethically continue doing what is is we're trying to do and I think as long as honestly we can retain control we can uh, be certain at least in the short term that we can do that now now long term I say retain control uh, we were uh, and for our platform we want to build a DAO it's very important. It's an actual functioning DAO, not a, not a BS. We, we have a DAO. Like, no, like really build this into the platform and have it help regulate Avalon. Um, that's long-term vision. Short-term, we're going to guide us until we can get to a path that, that we can really uh, slowly un- unleash this. And, and that DAO is probably a little bit of an antiquated term, some sort of governance. I really like Futarchy. If you guys Google Futarchy, I know it's a funny word. Um, th- there's a lot to be um, gathered from that for governance uh you know honestly
2: interoperability has to it has to it has to start at an individual right you know the thirteen year old kid uh you devin um we have to be interoperable with all your all of your ideas um up to owners of intellectual property large companies um consortiums that that want to live and do business in you know a burgeoning metaverse Interoperability has to include them all, or that then you're basically making arbitrary decisions about who can complain your playground right that gets that gets ugly pretty quickly uh, I think we'll we'll draw the line at criminals uh, people people who wish to exploit um, you know people who have um, repugnant ideologies right um, as as determined by a DAO or society in general, uh, or the law.
1: Yeah, you know, laws. That's that's part of, the, I've, you know, our motivation for building this in a way that's decentralized and, and democratized. Is the laws can't keep up. Um, you know, the, the laws from around the world they just they can't keep up with the regulation that needs to happen, and and the regulation needs to happen. Like I don't want to be the arbiter of the metaverse. I, that's that's too big a. That's too big a cap for anyone human to wear. I don't care who you are. We need to build a democracy into this platform. It needs to be done. And, and, and we're not going to be able to do it with laws alone. It has to be built into the technology. Well, what's gonna be the
3: approach to partnership then in terms of like um so like there there could be like one one level which is just saying like come to us if you're interested and we'll talk about it, which is the like not public at all really version right and then there's the well, we have a partnership program you can apply to here and it you know has these terms or whatever, and then there's the anyone could build using this API or this technology as long as they're following these technologies rules like those are kind of some different levels like where are you guys looking to go? I know short term maybe yes. haven't been decided completely yet, but
1: yes yes to all three yes to all three (laughs) perfect yeah (laughs) thank you 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 literally answered the question yeah yes to all three so i mean long term i mean when when avalon releases it's going to be built in such a way that anyone can just start building no no questions asked like if you're a big intellectual property you can just jump on there and start building if you're an individual you can jump on there and start building again creating needs to feel like playing you won't even know you're doing it you'll be playing the game Taking out a village of goblins and the next moment you're going to be building a city right with your buddies that's how it's going to work but then we're going to reach out to the intellectual property too and then try and get them to you know hop on board with us go, go ahead jeff in everquest you weren't allowed to
2: steal intellectual property so if you made a name like darth vader right? And you started running around with black gear on, we'd come and change your name. And people would scream and like, hey, like, I got this name first. Like, do you own the rights to Darth Vader? Well, uh, like, you know, the guy lives in Waukegan. No, he did not own the rights to Darth Vader. So we changed his name. Uh, one day we came to a guy named Dritz de Erden, uh, the, the famous ranger from Forgotten Realms, um, who's uh, who's in all of R.A. Salvatore's books. And we were like, oh, hey, it's great to meet you, Dritzt. Uh, we had to change your name. He's like, oh, why? And they, we said, well, because your name is intellectual property, right? Belongs to R.A. Salvatore. And he said, oh, could you do me a favor? Sure. Before we change your name? Well, yeah, okay. He's like, can you look up my registration information from your interface there? And the and the DM was like, hold on, sure, Robert something Salvatore, I forget what his middle name was, and yeah, that was RA Salvatore running around in our game as Dritz de Urdan. and the dungeon master said, well, uh, we hope you're enjoying the game. Thank you, sir. <laughs> you can keep the name Dritz de Urdan, since it belongs to you great example of what the future is going to bring to us.
3: Well, I hope we have NFT licenses and stuff in the future so that you don't have to ask that question. Exactly. You can ask the blockchain, do you have permission to do that? Preci- precisely the case where like, you know, I hand you a teddy bear and you, and you
2: look at that teddy bear and, and everyone who's ever owned it, you, found that, you find that it was given
1: to me by R.A. Salvatore three years ago. Yep. And so on and so forth. And that, that's part of the problem blockchain solves, right? It makes all of that much easier, automated and decentralized. Um, yeah, didn't you guys you you guys kept working with RA Salvatore, right after that, Jeff?
2: Oh, absolutely. RA Salvatore, you know, he presided over the authorship of EverQuest-related books and stuff like that. We forged a business relationship with him. Um, you know, ultimately, I don't know how how much you guys are aware of the darker side of free-to-play gaming, um, the <laughs> yeah. fact that money money laundering and terrorism <coughs> uh, has been involved over the years. I mean, these are very real issues and. Those issues. I mean, I I brought them up when people started talking about free to play. I was like, oh, "Hey, wait a second! Isn't this isn't this a a textbook way to launder money? <laughs> right? You know, I I go from a country where uh you know where we're not allowed to, to to commerce with that country, and I buy a bunch of uh you know game cards, and then move the money across the international borders." In, in ways that don't require any effort on the other side because it's all digital transactions and goods, right? So I buy $100,000 worth of materials in, say, let, let's say EVE Online, right? And next thing you know, money is laundered as a result. <laughs> it's not it's not rocket surgery. Um, we've got to guard against things like that. We, if, if we're going to create this incredible thing, we can't allow it to be destroyed from within I uh, bet we, we have to, or the
1: FBI will make us. So we're gonna we're gonna have to.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, if the government doesn't like you, then suddenly you're a, a harbor for kitty porn and terrorism and drugs and everything else. Right? You're suddenly the new Silk Road or whatever it is. Uh, you just get labeled that way. And I think we're, we're gonna we're have proactive. to have pretty
1: heavy handed moderation in the early days, especially. Um, it's gonna be a complicated thing because we are really trying to build democracy into this platform there 's going if we go the distance there's going to be all kinds of legislation built around this um, who who knows who knows where this is going to go so you know ha- having having worked with the, the,
2: the then world 's largest massively multiplayer game, I can tell you the people who developed that game were not thinking about tTP they weren 't thinking about all the moderation problems that they were going to have um, in customer service one of the reasons why I came on board because i i, re- I really Played the crap out of Ultima Online and, and other games, and I knew the problems that they were going to have with moderation, even volunteer moderation. Um, you know, the 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 story goes goes way back into uh, interpersonal uh, problems and you know laws broken, uh, all sorts of other crazy stuff. So. Having that perspective will help us a lot, um, and we're going to have to extend that perspective into this future of gaming that we're talking about, right? It's, it's going to require a lot of very intelligent people sitting down and engineering tools, moderation, uh, you know, structures that allow us to prevent all the bad stuff from happening. And picking up technology that already exists and using it as a tool just makes sense
3: appreciate using the titular line of the show, by the way. Exactly. That's what we're here for. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Um,
0: And so, um, final question. What's next for Avalon? What can we expect?
1: And where can people stay updated? Yep. So, you know, making MMOs take a long time. And making this takes a long time as well. But we've been at it for about a year. We've built a pretty amazing team, about 50 people now. You know, I imagine by the time we'll ship, we'll be, over over a couple hundred at least. Um we, you know we had a press release recently. You can join our Discord, you can you can find our Twitter at Avalon. Um mm-hmm. if you want to stay up to date with the most recent things. Uh, but look out for some big announcements later this year. You, we haven't shown you much that's on purpose, but there's a lot to show. We're going to we're going to be we're going to be dropping some jaws later this year. So look out. Look out. Can you come do those on the podcast first? So that way we can be exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> asking real questions
2: i like it yeah good um fantastic we, we'd love to loop back around with you guys frequently and talk about the stuff that well, we're hopefully working eventually on. eventually
3: we'll be doing this on the avalon platform right
2: exactly we we actually talk about that yeah, right that's actually jump, ironically say that. <laughs> it's it it's something we we initially discussed we we are working toward actually having our, our meetings and our collaboration
1: in our tool. Got to dog food it. Eventually yeah, we need
3: yeah. that Fogdale world, right Nico? Screw Central Land. let's move over, Keep, let's move yeah, over down. The, down. for the, for that the battle
1: between Merit Circle and YGG and Fogdow is going to drop in with the nuclear bomb and just uh, take everyone out. Easy. Take yeah. all those digital collectibles, millions of dollars in loot. They're going to be pretty sad. <laughs> Mod them out of existence. <laughs>
0: Uh, I can finally put my bags to work. All right. Um, good. Yep. Jeff and Sean, I want to thank you so much for joining. This was uh, amazing. Uh, you guys are building something really exciting. And I can't wait to have you on again to talk about um, some more information. We can talk about a bit more about what you've already done and what you're going to do. Um, Devin, thanks for asking the good questions here. Uh, always appreciate you being here. And listener, thank you most of all for listening. If you made it here, I uh, really appreciate it. If you liked it, feel free to let us know. Leave us a like. You're listening to this probably in the week before GDC. If you're going to be at GDC, we're doing a Fog Down meetup Thursday, 10 a.m. Um, details to be confirmed. And if you want to join that, it's actually like I made a uh, event, Bright event, 200 tickets sold out already. I don't know how. Um, but if you join a Discord and just ping us, uh, we'll definitely get you in. All right, that was it. Thank you guys for joining and speak to you in the next episode. Ciao.